This episode contains stories about mental ill health, death, racism, suicide, rape, self-harm and abuse. Please be mindful when you choose to listen. We'll also be talking about self-inflicted deaths, which is the language we use at Inquest around what is more commonly called suicide. You're listening to Unlawful Killing, Death, Resistance and the Fight for Justice. A podcast by Inquest, the only charity fighting alongside families bereaved by deaths involving the state, including police, prison and mental health services. I'm Lee Lawrence, advocate and son of Cherry Gross, who was shot by the Metropolitan Police, which sparked the 1985 Brixton uprisings. And I'm Lucy Brisbane from Inquest. In this series, we're diving into our 40-year history of campaigning. We'll be doing this through conversations with those at the centre of these stories. Episode 6, Mental Health, Part 2. I wanted the truth. I, I knew right from the go that I hadn't received the truth. And I think that's what every family wants, not to be lied to. But, uh, you know, we want truth, we want accountability. Our loved one died, for God's sake. I want to know what happened to him and who's responsible. Last episode, we spoke about the people who die in the care of our mental health system and what happens when the systems of criminal justice and mental health care collide. For this episode, Lucy spoke to Melanie Leahy, whose son Matthew died in the care of Essex Mental Health Services and her relentless campaign for justice. Hi, I'm Melanie Leahy. I'm mum to Matthew Leahy, who died age 20 within seven days of entering the mental health system. And who am I? I'm just a mum. Obviously, Matthew was just 20 when he died in 2012, whilst he was an inpatient at the Linden Centre, which is part of the Essex Mental Health Services. And three years later, an inquest found multiple various failings and missed opportunities in his care. Since then, there have been so many investigations and reports on his death and then other similar preventable deaths. So much has happened, but I wondered, Melanie, if you could just give us a brief overview of what happened to Matthew whilst he was in the care of those services that were meant to keep him safe. Wow, I'd really like to know the answer to that question, and that's why there's been so many investigations. Matthew entered the services on 7th of November 2012 and was dead by the 15th. Paperwork was missing, observation notes were missing, staff went missing. Paperwork was falsified after he died. We have not got the absolute truth of what happened to Matthew and that's why I've campaigned for the last 11 years to secure the first ever statutory public inquiry into the mental health services in Essex. It doesn't matter how many investigations there's been. To be honest, the the first investigation was done by the Trust, which was a serious incident report. 
And uh, it took me four and a half years to prove that report wasn't worth the paper it was written on because that also was falsified and missed out vital information. So uh, the journey's just been a horrendous long journey to the truth. And so long, 11 years, and you're still going. Yes. I mean, in that, in that period, obviously, I fought four and a half years to have the health and safety executive look into the situation. And he finally prosecuted the trust for 1.5 million for the causation of 11 deaths. Nobody held to account for ignoring warnings, ignoring recommendations, ignoring must-dos. We also went through a corporate manslaughter investigation that was also shelved after four and a half years. It's been a frustrating, tedious, emotional journey, not just for myself, but for the many, many families that have also been involved in the, in the whole process. And we've all been fouled. I just wondered, what was it like going through those legal processes first as a mother at a time of huge grief and then moving into your journey also as a campaigner alongside that? It's been horrendous days where I've been on the floor on my knees and, and then you, you, it's like waves of energy then emerge to continue the fight. Obviously, I had no legal background, but on the journey, I learned. I studied the internet. I, I, as a, as this police, one of the DCI system, you must have an ology in this, all this stuff. And go and, you could go and advise many, many of the, the management at, this, at these trusts and the police themselves. Because, yeah, I, I've learned a lot about processes. Initially, there was no help. There was no support. As I reached out and social media was a great tool to be able to use, I met other families that have suffered the same trauma, the same losses, and we started to work together. And some of those had legal training, were able to help me. Campaign groups like yourselves came on board to help at different times. It's just, you know, along the way, I think I've been blessed that different people have come in to support and to help to get to this stage. Yeah, you have an amazing group of families that you've met along the way. I was wondering if you can tell us a bit about what you knew about issues with mental health services before all this happened and what you've learned since. Well, to be fair, if you're not involved in that system and don't have a loved one with that problem, I have to be honest, you tend to not think about it, you know? So um, I used to have a career where I, I took in people into house shares, vulnerable people, and I, I used to help them with their paperwork and stuff like that, but never really understood the mental health services or whether there was a problem until, obviously, we used it. And my mind was like, oh, you know, they're just, they've got problems and ignore it. And unfortunately, that is the way of the world. Unless it affects you, you don't give a monkey's. But once I started to understand and talk to people and look further into it, I was absolutely disgusted and I couldn't believe it. And people nowadays will read some of the uh, and hear some of the evidence that comes forth from the inquiry in the next few years and they will be utterly shocked. It shocked me to the core, actually, what, what I, I've learned. Because I know, Melanie, that Matthew was actually one of six people to die at the Linden Centre between 2004 in 2015 and the initial inquiry that opened into Essex Mental Health Services in their kind of first public report they found that 1,500 people had died while they were a patient or on a mental health ward or within three months of being discharged over a 20-year period and more and more stories keep coming forward more and more people impacted by failures in Essex Mental Health Services. You've mounted this huge campaign and come together with so many families what would have made a difference for you at the start 
in terms of the legal processes. You've needed to do this because the processes haven't given you the answers. But as a family member, if you turned up the investigation, the inquest, what is it that you would have wanted from those processes that you haven't got and that have led to this longer fight and the statutory inquiry now? I wanted the truth. I, I knew right from the go that I hadn't received the truth. And I think that's what every family wants, not to be lied to. But, uh, you know, we want truth, we want accountability. Our loved one died, for God's sake. I want to know what happened to him and who's responsible. And, you know, these figures, 1,500, then suddenly become 2,000, like so many months later. I did a freedom of information to ask how many people have died at the Linden Centre, and it came back zero. And I knew that to be an absolute lie because one of the boys that died, it was at Christmas, there were, the undertakers weren't available he was left dead in the room for over eight hours before someone come collect him. Other than that, like Matthew, he was transported to Mid-Essex hospitals where they used to pronounce dead there. So this is what they do. They move the bodies to a different hospital, have them declared dead elsewhere and, and lose the death from the figures. So I don't believe for a minute that 1,500, 2,000 are the correct figures. And even when uh, Essex police were looking into how many people have died by ligature, in the centres, they came up with a figure of 125. But the DCR in the case is, look, we still cannot be sure of that figure. We had to go to Manchester to a university study to get figures because figures have not been kept. So we are now, like, we're calling for families to come forward that, you know, have been lost over the years. They need to step forward and please share their evidence. And we've got more more numbers to, to come. You know, obviously now both of us are very knowledgeable about these areas, but the listener would be shocked by what you've just said to understand that our NHS mental health services do not know how many people are dying in their care. Well, not only that, I mean, the, the, of the 1,500 that the, the old chair declared, she said they didn't know how 900 of them had even died. It just shouldn't be that hard. Do these people not matter? Do their deaths not matter? It's horrendous. In this day and age, in our modern society, we don't know that information. How long have we had computers to keep these records? It's disgusting. And it just shows, did these people not matter? Every single one of them did. And can you explain, so I know we've mentioned that there's now the statutory public inquiry into Essex Mental Health Services as a whole, which is looking over a long period of time. Can you explain why you called for an inquiry and what that statutory inquiry means? I called for an inquiry because I was told that was the only way that I could get staff in under oath. I was given an independent investigation by Nadine Doris. She commissioned that. That's not what the country asked for. We had 109,000 people on a curtail petition asking for the statutory powers. We've now waited another three years finally secured it. 16,000 staff were asked to give evidence to this independent inquiry. I think something like 14 or 11 or 14 came forward. Says it all, doesn't it? But like the chair said, she now has the power to compel staff. If they don't come forward, it will be criminal offence. And that pleases me, but not only me, but the families that also want their answers, that now hopefully these staff, you know, will be questioned. At Matthew's inquest, you know, the, the place where we're told you'll get your answers, I had two senior staff that were involved in his in what happened to him, couldn't be found. We had um, other nurses and staff that weren't there at the inquest. I honestly don't know how it, it concluded with the, the outcome it did. I had a really good jury 
that could see through the fog. You know, so the inquest process for me was a complete farce. It really was. So this inquiry is very important to, to get these people on the, on the stand. And through your time as a campaigner and meeting other families, what have you learned about Essex Mental Health Services? What's particularly going wrong there? Oof, everything. You name it. Staff are sleeping. They come in working for agencies. They might be caught and they lose their job. They go work for another agency and come back and do it again. Um, there's no registration. Half the time there's there's lack of staff on the ward. We've got sexual abuse occurring. It's being ignored. You know, mental health patient cries rape. They're making it up. Paperwork is being falsified. Observations aren't being done correctly. You name it, it's happening. Senior management sitting there, their little offices pushing around board papers. Middle management are pushing around reviews and reports and plagiarising things. And, um, you know, from the top down to the bottom, nothing is running, in my mind, as it's meant to be running. There's policies and they're being ignored and they're being broken. It's not rocket science what's going wrong. And because you know you've learned so much now about what's happening from other families and from everything that you have learned and read over the years, what do you think needs to change? What do you hope the inquiry will call for? I have asked the the chair, you know, she's talking about making recommendations. I've heard recommendation after recommendation, lesson learned. This is like the rhetoric is repeating itself. We need accountability. We need must-dos. It's not should-dos recommendations. We need must do's and registration of staff. We need to know who's coming in the ward. The training needs to be improved. If um, management have to give a higher wage to secure more superior staff, then that's what they need to do. You know, the whole system needs a, a radical shake up and not just in Essex, across the nation. So, you know, my hope is that we start it here in Essex and we send a ripple across, across the country. So it's kind of like a total system shift a big radical change needs to happen in our mental health services it really does because we know it's happening everywhere i mean i even get messages from canada keep doing what you're doing there because whatever changes you're making here or of rippling over to us america's is just as bad it's important i think to hear you say as well that obviously a lot of attention from the inquiry has been brought on essex and there's been through your campaigning and your work in the media massive exposure of the issues in Essex but we know at inquest and we know from other media reports and investigations that these issues are national but Essex in particular seems to have a real issue. I I think you know Essex has an issue because it's been highlighted now where we're I think last call with the solicitors that are helping us is uh, we're up to 118 families now yeah it is happening everywhere you know, like everybody, we want to get help. We, we need to get help. I spoke to different, so many different people. How important has that legal support been for you? How did you end up working with those lawyers and what difference has it made? Oh, amazing. I think I started talking to Nina Alley at Hodge Jones and Allen probably over five years ago, telling them my story. And finally, Nina says, right, yeah, I'm going to get involved. And even till today, they're, they're still working on a, they're, they're not even getting paid. The inquiry still has not paid them. So now they're working with all the families. They're doing a lot of no win, no fee cases for them. They're supporting them at inquests. Um, they're talking to patients. They're talking to whistleblowers. 
So yeah, the, the call is there. They've, they've been an absolute godsend. I can't thank Nina and Priya enough, literally, for the work they've done. When you know something's not right, and then suddenly someone comes in, looks at the evidence, and actually believes it with you, you think you're not going mad. You know, I, I saw through, I saw through the trees, and then someone with a legal background sees through the trees as well, and uh, gives you that confidence. Yeah, invaluable. It's amazing. Something that I have really learned since working at Inquest is our image of lawyers is just like, you know, very professional. They turn up, they do the job, they get paid. But actually, so many of the lawyers that we work with, they care so much about the issues that they're working on and they're prepared to just go above and beyond alongside families to actually do work that makes a difference. Yeah, and they're not just sitting in their offices. They have been coming and going out to different meetings and they've even come out on the street and campaigned and, and held their banners, held their coffins and walked beside us, you know. Amazing. Like Inquest as well. They've, you know, they've been out on the streets with us as well. Big thank you. You mentioned a coffin. Can you tell us about what that is? Yeah, it, literally it was a centrepiece of... Um, Part of our campaigning, we walked Downing Street with a homemade coffin with names all over it. It was a, an idea that I actually stole from Marsha Rigg, and I just thought, what a great idea. So we made a coffin, and yeah, it's it's a really poignant symbol. So we've had the solicitors, all of us, we stood, and top hats and towels. We walked down to Downing Street, and we placed it with a wreath, and it's one of our centrepieces at our campaigning when we go out on the streets. Sadly, um, it does get more and more covered in names as, as the days progress because obviously more and more are dying. You know, there'll come a day where um, we won't be able to add any more names. Well, hopefully that will be because there won't be more names to add from your campaigning and hopefully the changes are going to be made. I was going to ask you, you mentioned their learning from Marcia Reagan being inspired by other family campaigners, which we love to hear about. Can you tell us a bit about the families that you've met along the way and, and what difference that's made joining forces or learning from other family campaigners? Through Inquest Group, I did go to a few family events and I met other campaigners. I marched with United Family and Friends campaign last year. An amazing experience and, and stood up on their platform and spoke. And, you know, the families there are such a powerful testament to, you know, the loved ones that they've lost. And I love every single one and respect every single one of them for the work that they're doing to try and obviously, again, get their answers, but also to stop these deaths happening, stop the brutality within the police system. I know you're working and fighting alongside so many families doing amazing things, but I just want to commend you for the work that you've done and You've achieved so many things and you've brought such huge attention to the issues that you're fighting on and huge attention to the mental health services and the failures. And I just want to say thank you from Inquest. Thank you from everyone that's going to benefit from the work that you've done and just really commend you. Thank you. Because it's not easy. And we've heard that it's not easy and it's, it takes a lot of your energy. So thank you for everything that you're doing and continue today thank you very much thanks for the opportunity it wasn't a question but just had to say but on that note I do have a question which is if you could go back to the days just shortly after Matthew died and tell yourself one thing about this journey that's followed what would it be wow I wouldn't change it I'm really glad from, you know, having lost Matthew that I've been on this journey. And before I go, can I just say, I, I have to say that Will Powell, who fought for, he's, he's still fighting 33 years, I think, 
to pulpit for Count Ingrid Trufi's son, Robbie's death. That man, I spoke to him at length in early days, and he said, Mel, if you're going to do this, you need to be in for the long haul. And I said, well, I will be in for the long haul. That man inspired me, and he still inspires me to this day. This is why I wouldn't change it, because I've met such amazing on the journey. You know, this is Matthew's legacy now. We will change the mental health system. I'm determined we will. And I have one last question for you. So obviously we've spoken about the issues of mental health services, the way in which Matthew was failed, other families have been failed. But first and foremost, we know Matthew was your son. You loved him. He was a person before all of this that mattered. Can you tell us a little bit about who he was and one thing that you'd like everyone to know about him? Matthew was amazing. He'd excelled at school, gone into grammar school, set up his own business, didn't get poorly till about 19, dead by 20. It was so quick. And, you know, I, I always remember he trained as a lifeguard. He rescued two ladies from the water, saved their lives. And all I just remember is the fact that when he needed his life saving, that wasn't offered to him. He was one to want to protect other people. He wanted to protect the girls on the ward. He knew, knew they were getting sexually abused and raped. And, the one thing I suppose I'd want them to remember is that he would want this. He would want to save lives. So for me, he would be that proud that I'm trying to do that in his name. He was an amazing person, my angel. Do you know, I always remember I just viewed his body and asked to leave and I left the hospital and I put the radio on and I said, I sent up my thoughts and I said, Matt, what should I do? What should I do? And Emily Sandy came on, put it in all the papers, tell everyone about it. And that's what I did, and I never stopped. I love that moment. I love that way that Melanie ended that interview. And he and hearing about Matthew as a person and, and that he would have wanted her to campaign. But it was weird interviewing Melanie without you, Lee, because uh, I felt like I could imagine all the things that you would be saying as a family and a campaigner. So I really want to hear, what did you think about what Melanie said? Well, first of all, I think you've done exceptionally well in terms of the interview. And I felt like she really opened up and you got a real insight into not only Matthew, her son, and what he was like, but where her drive and her sense of purpose comes from and her continuous work and the way she wrapped up by saying he was a lifeguard, he saved two people's lives and when he needed saving, nobody was there and that she feels he would want her in his name and his legacy to save others. I thought, wow. How powerful was that? Yeah, so poignant. And what was amazing is that I've seen Melanie on the news loads. I've heard her speaking at protests. She has been campaigning for a long, long time. And she does a lot of interviews. But to sit down and get that level of in-depth conversation and really hear those kind of poignant moments in her life and in her campaign about Matthew and also, the way that she linked up with other families, that's something that you really don't hear about as much, like all the shoulders that you stand on, all the people you stand alongside. Her being inspired by Marcia Rigg and an idea that Marcia had at the protest, her meeting that father like really early on in her campaign, 
that felt really moving and it felt like I hadn't really heard that before. I didn't know that. Yeah, and I think we can underestimate like that sort of peer-to-peer -peer support, how effective and how powerful that can be when you're speaking to somebody who has walked that path, who understands what you're going through. And although people who are fighting for their loved ones don't ever choose to be campaigners, it's something that you find yourself in. But I think the power of somebody who is that connected is, so you're vulnerable enough for people to have a lens into how deeply this cuts. And you're strong enough, you have the strength because you know why you're fighting, to supersede all those challenges that are there to prevent you from getting the kind of recognition for that person that that's needed. But you're willing to go that extra mile because of how much this person means to you. So in this interview, you really get a sense of the combination of when that comes together, how powerful that can be. Yeah, and it's really important to acknowledge that what Melanie has achieved, alongside all the people that she's been working with, the lawyers, inquests, other families, what Melanie has achieved in securing a statutory public inquiry into Essex Mental Health Services is huge. And Lucy, for the listener, can you explain what a public inquiry is and how it works? So a statutory public inquiry is part of the legal processes that can respond to deaths or other big issues. People might more commonly know about the Grenfell public inquiry or the COVID public inquiry. Those are statutory inquiries and they have the power to compel witnesses. They will examine all the evidence, a bit like a court or a bit like a sort of bigger inquest. And they have the power to make recommendations maybe to the government or to individual institutions with the intention of creating the changes that are required to respond to and prevent the same issues or the same deaths from happening again. This is the first time a public inquiry of that nature has looked into deaths in a mental health trust as a whole, into so many deaths. And the hope is that that will shine a light across all the mental health settings where people are being failed. And she spoke about the ways in which people are being failed, the things that we know that are happening, but the power of those inquiries is that it's independent. They can legally compel witnesses. It's so important. So that's what she's achieved so far. And she's got so much more that she can do. So Lucy, the other thing that I picked up from Melanie was the fact that she mentioned other people who inspired her and gave her ideas. And one of the people she mentioned was Marcia Riggs, who I know really well. And... It was the, the coffin idea, right? Which I thought was really creative about putting all the names of the people who have died in mental health institutions in Essex on the coffin and delivering that with a reef. I thought, wow, I just could imagine it, picture that in my mind. And Marcia's a force to be reckoned with. I, I will never forget when I was going through the case with my mum, I didn't know Marcia and I saw her sitting in a restaurant somewhere and I, and I wanted to go and speak to her and just introduce myself and say, you know, I'm going through a similar thing right now and just connect. And I and I didn't, and I was kicking myself. And I said, the next time I get opportunity to speak to her, I'm definitely gonna, you know, have a proper reason. And luckily that opportunity came. And she's like, she's like a sister, you know. We we when we see each other, she's like, Yes, brother. And I'm like, Yes, sis. And I think because their names come up, I think it's important to maybe give a brief overview of who is Marcia Rigg and who has she been campaigning for. So Marcia Rigg is on our family reference group at Inquest, as is Lee. She's also a prominent campaigner around policing and racism in this country. And that's because her brother, Sean Rigg, died 
in 2008 at Brixton Police Station, similar to what we've been speaking about, he was experiencing a mental health crisis and he was restrained by police officers with excessive force and he ended up dead. Marcia has been campaigning ever since and she does so as part of the United Families and Friends campaign. And that has definitely inspired a lot of families. I love she's got like celebrity status here. And I think we're definitely going to speak to her at some point later in the series. Yeah, I think it would be great to get her in. And just finally bringing it back to Melanie. That point she made about that moment when she, you know, asked the world, the universe, what would Matthew want her to do? And that song came on, put in all the papers tell everyone about it that felt so moving and so poignant and that's exactly what she's done over the last 11 years which felt so powerful and what a way to end yeah and so purposeful and I think if we was all to sit down and think there's many times that we put out a question and we might we may get a sign and we don't act upon it we don't move with the same level of purposefulness right and I think when you do I think you know, that's an example of what can happen when you really are in tune and you listen and you respond and you allow yourself to be guided because that's another thing. We are fighting for our loved ones. And I think most people would agree that we feel led by them because we're just being their voice. So the more we hear and listen and respond, I think the, the, the more we actually make happen. That brings us to the end of series one, part one. We've now had six episodes exploring the fatal consequences of policing, prisons and mental health services and how these systems reinforce each other. We've heard from powerful voices and campaigners about their loved ones who have died, the failures that led to their deaths and their ongoing fights for change. But this is really just the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more that we haven't even begun to touch on. You know, we've had such a rich insight into all these, you know, different um, experiences, these different cases, these different examples of injustices by the system. It's hard to kind of really understand what people mean by that. And the way that we've managed to break that all down throughout the episodes, it allows people to kind of have a lens into each different institution, whether it's prison, police, or mental health, and to understand the kind of unique issues that people are faced with that really affect us all and that we should all be concerned with. In the next part of the series, we'll be delving into what truth, justice and accountability looks like when somebody dies in the care of the state. We'll continue to hear from families at the heart of these struggles, as well as lawyers, campaigners and others who have joined their fights. We know that this is a really difficult episode. If you've been affected by any of the themes that have come up, please go to the links in the episode notes. If you think other people would like Unlawful Killing, then please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Ratings and feedback really help others discover the show. If you have a story to share, 
Get in touch via communications at inquest.org.uk or on social media. We'd also like to pay tribute to the thousands of bereaved families who have worked alongside Inquest. Thank you to each and every one of you who have created powerful legacies for your loved ones and contributed to important changes which protect all of us. Unlawful Killing is made in partnership with Inquest and Aunt Nell, presented by me, Lucy Brisbane, and Lee Lawrence, produced by Leila Hagman and Naomi Oppenheim. Consultant producers Tash Walker and Adam Smith. The music in this podcast is by Dave Okumu. This podcast is part funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. We're grateful that this podcast series is supported by Hodge, Jones & Allen, a key law firm in the fight for what's right. Their lawyers help people right wrongs, fight injustice and defend people's rights. Inquest have worked with Hodge, Jones & Allen on countless cases from the Marchioness disaster of 1989 to the ongoing Essex Mental Health Inquiry. Thanks also to the students from the Centre for Social Justice Research at the University of Westminster who helped with the research for the podcast. And finally, we'd like to thank everyone who's participated in our oral history project. We'd also like to thank Melanie Leahy for speaking to us. You can find out more about the Essex Mental Health Inquiry through the link in our show notes.